A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabby Collins. And this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Michael Rappaport. And I'm Kibi Rappaport. And together we're hosting Rappaport's Rappaport's Reality Reality Podcast. Podcast. We have a passion for reality TV, and we're inviting you into our living room. We're dissecting the drama, and we're giving praise to the single greatest form of entertainment on television today. That is right. Reality TV is the greatest form of entertainment on television today. Listen to Rappaport's reality with me, Kibi Rappaport. And me, Michael Rappaport, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. Hi guys, and welcome back to another new episode of Union Therapy Podcast. My name is Kat, and I'm so glad you're here. If you're new and you don't know me, I am a therapist who lives in Nashville who started this podcast a little bit ago to start having some conversations that I wished were being had more often. And we've been doing that for a couple years now. Um, just before we get started, reminder that this is not therapy itself. This is a podcast hosted by a therapist. So today... We have an awesome guest. His name is Jonathan Fields, and his name might be familiar to you because he hosts a really awesome podcast called The Good Life Project, Um, and he is an award-winning author as well, and today I had him talk about his journey in his career and all of that because we've talked about that before on the show. Talk about like passion and curiosity that what should my job be? Should my job be my passion project? Should my passion be my job? Should blah, 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 blah. Where do I find meaning? And Jonathan just so happened to write a book that is coming out tomorrow called Sparked. Discover your unique imprint for the work that makes you come alive. I'm not going to give you too much information because we talk all about it, but Jonathan is a really cool guy, and I was so happy that I got to have this conversation with him. He gave me some light bulb moments. He gave me some things to think about, and I'm super excited to dive into this book now because I think it's going to be really helpful for me and a really helpful tool for me to offer my clients. So without any further of me babbling on, here is my conversation with Jonathan. Welcome to Unique Therapy. Thank you. It's great to be here with you. Jonathan is a very new friend who I just met. I'm I'm learning about him as you guys who are listening are learning as well. And what I what I know is that you host a really, really popular podcast, The Good Life Project. I mean, you have incredible guests on. Um, you cover in, in a lot of topics and it's one of like the leading podcasts in that area. So I would like to know, one, how did that even start and what life 
brought you into starting a podcast? Because I don't know if this is true, but did you get into podcasting before it was as big as it is now? I did, actually. Yeah. In fact, so Good Life Project started in 2012. And we actually started with video, not podcasting. And so we were actually filming on location with a crew, like hour-long conversations with people. About two years into that, I got the bug for audio. I'm also an author. So every once in a while, I would find myself like doing a whole bunch of radio and there's something kind of magical about just, you know, when you having a conversation that's just audio with like headphones on and microphones, I don't know what it was about it, but I just felt really pulled towards it. So we started producing uh, audio too. We stripped it out. We started airing it as a podcast. And then, um, I decided I didn't want to do video anymore. I just wanted to do the audio side of it. People thought I was there was something wrong with me because we were doing really well on video. We were growing quickly, but I kind of went all in on it. And this was at a, a time where people thought podcasting was over. It was the final days of it. It was about to go away. And then two things happened. Uh, I think it was 2015. Apple split out the podcast app and started installing it native on every device. And then Serial launched. That was the first podcast that I listened to. Yeah, it was for many people. that, And that completely changed the game. It, it reawakened the giant in the podcasting space. And then also that show brought millions of new people to the medium. And it just kind of like changed the trajectory of the entire medium. It, it gave it new life. And so we've been in since like the, the pretty early days there yeah. and really um, been just super fortunate to ride that wave. Yeah. Okay. So take me, cause you just told me that you have like 15 past lives I did. Of, <laughs> of, of careers and something that uh, we've talked about on the podcast a lot is careers and passion and purpose and shifting and allowing yourself to change. And that's something that I, I really like talking about and people like hearing about. So can you tell me about, where you started to how did you get here? And then also I'm curious about how did you get to the point where you're creating the kind of content you're creating? I have a long and sorted uh, meandering through different careers, but I was also, I was a lemonade stand kid. You know, I've had entrepreneurship in my bones from the earliest days. And I'm also a maker. Like I, I open my eyes in the morning and I just, I look around and say, what can I create today? Um, it's been my strongest impulse for as long as I can remember. When I hit you know, my grown-up life, um, I ended up oddly in law school, which nobody around me could really understand. I was really fortunate. I did well, and I ended up practicing law in New York City for about five years. But in the middle of that, I ended up with a window where I was working probably about three weeks straight with very little time off. There were days, two, three days, where I just would never actually come home from the office. Massive stress, overwhelm, burn out taking horrible care of myself. And I ended up in the hospital in emergency surgery when my immune system pretty much shut down and this abscess infection that had been probably brewing at a low level just had nothing left to fight it and literally just exploded inside my body and ate a hole through my intestines from the outside in. Oh my God. Yeah, it was a bit scary. And it was and it was a wake up call for me. You know, when your career rejects your is rejected by your body, you kind of have to listen. Although so many yeah. of us don't. And I'm sure, I wonder actually how, how often that dynamic comes up with you in the work that you do, because I think there's often so much tension there. But for me, it really set me on a different quest, you know, reimagining this thing that we call work, because it's the thing that most of us do for most of our waking hours for the rest of our lives. If it's more emptying than filling, that's a really brutal dynamic to move through each day. So I went there and eventually moved back into the world of fitness and entrepreneurship. I've been you know, fascinated by the mind-body connection, human potential for years. I went from, you know, making six figures in a, in a, a giant law firm in New York City to making $12 an hour as a personal trainer, 
just to learn the industry. But it was wonderful. It was like a great education for me. I want to zone in on that because that is a huge deal. And I don't think a lot of people are willing to do that. So what inside of you was like, this is worth it. Taking this lifestyle shift is worth it. Yeah. And, and that's actually a great thing to, to talk about because I think sometimes we just sort of say, oh, and then I did this and then I did this. It was a really hard shift to make. But I think it's also probably important to note that I was coming from a place that was unusual in that I, was, I had the ability to, to save a lot of money. You know, I knew this thing was coming. I knew there was a pretty safe bet that I was going to take a hit financially when I did it because I wanted to learn something entirely new and start completely at the at the the ground in a new industry. Um, so I just started saving money, like as much as I possibly could, to cover me for a while, so that it would lower the the stress burden that I would have as I transitioned. You know, to the extent that I could minimize the financial stress during the transition. So I stayed in the thing that I didn't want to be doing for probably the better part of a year just to be able to do that so that I knew that emotionally and psychologically, I'd be more okay during the transition. Beyond money, though, the bigger hit was was um, my ego. I had so much identity wrapped around this, you know, like power player, like in law, like at the, one of the best firms in the world and all this fancy stuff. And then I go from that to, you know, like waking up in the morning, throwing on running shoes, tights, and a t-shirt and hanging out with people. And on a day-to-day basis, I loved it. It was awesome. But there was definitely ego tied up in that identity of being a big firm lawyer that I had to learn to unwind and realize that, no, what I'm doing, actually, I like doing it. It's nourishing to me. It's making a real difference in in a way that I can touch and feel on an individual level with people that I couldn't with what I was doing before. So it it took some time to sort of make that transition. So interesting. I just had a conversation with Lori Gottlieb, who's the author of Maybe You Should Talk to Someone. She's awesome. So awesome. And she kind of talked about something kind of similar when she went to medical school and then she left. And what it brings up for me is this idea of, okay, I can do this job that people on the outside might think is like cool. For how long do they even care that I'm doing it? But they might think that that's cool. I'm smart. I'm successful. I'm whatever. But inside your body, you're abandoning this part of you that's like, there's something else. There's something else that I really like I'm longing for. And so you have to make the choice. What am I going to abandon myself or other people's ideas of, of who I am? Hmm. Which one is bigger? It's a, and, and a lot of times we pick... I'm gonna abandon myself, which is sad and hard, but you're talking about the space where it was also sad and hard to let go of what other people saw in me and the security of what I had, but it was worth it. Like there is a pool inside yes. of me that made it worth it. Yeah, a hundred percent. And it's, I love the way that you phrase that. It's it makes it so clear. It's like you're making this choice. But for me, the choice was, you know, it was pretty clear when it's affecting your mind, your body, your your health, your well being. You know, it was just a matter of what that next thing might look like, which has taken years and has changed many times over the years. And I I had to get really clear on what are the deeper qualities of work that make me come alive that could be a consistent through line through you know any number of different things. So what started as entrepreneurship in, in the world of well-being ended up in me opening my own facility and then doing that for a number of years and then eventually moving into the yoga world in New York City for um, a number of years also. And so it's been a series of evolutions, each one sort of learning a little bit more. And I I look at both life and my work life as a series of experiments. So for me, it's generally not, oh, this is the thing I'm saying yes to, and it has to work. It has to succeed because everything's tied up in it. I kind of look at it more as, well, you know what? This would be an interesting experiment to run. 
and let me let my, my main metric be learning and not some sort of mandatory metric for, you know, uh, success beyond that. Because if I can do it and I can, I can just fill in a little bit more in what I know about myself and the way that I interact with the world that makes me come alive, then no matter what happens, whether the job is something that I end up sticking with or whether it's a company that I, I stay with or I sell, it's been a success because I've grown from it. That right there, that's one of the, I think, the most important lessons I learned in the past like five years of when your goal, first of all, what is even success? relative subjective but when your goal is i always say when your goal is growth but even that when my goal is learning there's no way for me not to succeed there's literally no way and so if i go into all of these things thinking okay my goal is to learn something and that's going to move me to the next thing that i need then i'm always going to be on the right path still scary but a little bit less scary because i'm letting go of some expectation that i don't even really care about yeah, no, I completely agree with that. And I think, you know, I'm a huge fan of Carol Dweck and her work on growth versus fixed mindset. Um, but I think there's another element that sometimes we don't talk about when we talk about conversations around growth and and that's the stakes, you know, because I think it's really easy to say, well, you know, adopt a growth mindset and make learning your primary metric. And I, tr- I really try and do that. It's very easy to do that when the stakes are low in our lives. You know, when we have something to fall back on, when we've got a certain amount of savings where we know we're going to be okay, where we have, you know, community and people who won't abandon us. But when the stakes get higher, when your or your family's financial uh, security or well-being are completely on the line, it's much harder to do that. It's been a really interesting point that I, I've been fascinated at looking at because especially over the last couple of years, for a lot of people, the stakes have been consistently really, really high. So you feel like you don't have the ability to make a decision that might just let you learn more about yourself, but actually fail on uh, any number of other metrics where um, it would really, really hurt. And I think that's a conversation that's sort of like, it, it's important to bring that issue, you know? to the fore when we talk about things like this, because we all come from different places. We have different constraints and limitations and, and privileges and abilities. And so I'm, I'm a, I think growth is massively important. I think it's also really important to weave in the notion of individual circumstance at the same time when we explore it. What would you suggest in those, in those moments? Because you're right. I'm a single female who lives on her own, works on her own. There's not, nobody really is relying on me, but myself. And so I don't really have to consider a lot of things. So I could go take a risk and it's not going to be that big of a deal if it doesn't go the way that I might've envisioned. But you're right. I'm thinking about like my, my dad, he started a business during the recession of 2008, which is a huge risk. And he, there was a, a lot more riding on that. And that was way more difficult for him. He found a way to do it, but he still had a certain amount of privilege doing that. So what do you suggest for those people who, or what even can, could the conversation be around about those people who are like, well, I want to be able to go and, and grow and, and do all that, but it feels like at the same time, my feet are stuck here. Yeah. So a couple of things come to mind. One is test ideas as much as you can on the side. Like instead of saying, I'm all on in this one thing and I'm saying goodbye to this other thing, ask yourself, what are the experiments that I can run where I can get information about how, A, is this going to you know, like work? Will, will people want it? Um, but also how will I feel about it? Is it going to give me the feeling that I think it'll give me? Because I, I think a lot of times, you know, we're looking for something, whether it's a job or whether it's, you know, a company or a practice that we're looking at, will people want it? Will uh, they exchange value for it? Will I be compensated in a way where I can sustain myself? But the flip side is what I call 
product maker fit. You know, it's about, will it give me the feeling that I want to have? Because a lot of times you can do something where you can figure out ways to pay your mortgage, but it's actually depleting you on every other level. So I think like the idea is to run a series of small experiments. So instead of just walking away from the thing that you're doing, say, how can I run these little experiments on the side? So they can start gathering bits of information until it accumulates to enough insight that I feel like, no, you know what? I've gotten enough information that tells me that this next thing actually, it feels good for me. I've learned a lot about it and I'm pretty comfortable that I could transfer into it fairly readily and hit the ground running. What's interesting, it's, it's funny in the world of entrepreneurship, there's this mythology that you have to be all in. You have to leave everything else behind your life, your relationships, whatever job, like leave your job and go all in because the thing that you're starting, there's no way for it to exceed, succeed unless you go all in. Adam Grant introduced me to some fascinating research that said that that is actually completely wrong. The majority of the biggest companies in the world that were like came out of especially the tech world and the startup world, they actually had founders who stayed with their main job for as long as humanly possible and grew this new thing on the side until literally they just didn't have the waking hours in their day to be able to do both. And they, they were forced to make a choice to step into it, but they waited till the last possible minute. Or maybe if you had two people who founded something, one went all in and the other kept the day job for as long as they possibly could. Maybe one person had a family to support and the other person didn't. So I think the, the much more practical way for a lot of people to do it is to not just sort of like blow up everything that you're doing now, but to keep it going, to optimize it and make it as good as humanly possible. Because there are often a lot of little things that we can tweak to make things a lot better. And then to keep just sort of experimenting on the side and let that really inform the process. Hey guys, Kat here, and I have something very important to talk to you guys about. Now, I know you're used to hearing me talk about therapy and how important it can be for you and how transformative it can be for you in your life. But if you're somebody who's tried therapy and it just hasn't done the trick, or you just need a little extra boost, I think I've found the next best thing. And the next best thing might just be Cozy Earth and their bamboo sheets and their bamboo pajamas. It feels like you are stepping into a buttery, cozy, warm, and cool hug all at the same time. And that's just their pajamas. Don't even get me started on their sheets. As soon as I touched them, I said, okay, we're changing the sheets right now. And the bonus is they come in this really cute travel tote so you can take your sheets with you wherever you go. Elevate your summer getaway with Cozy Earth's luxurious bedding and loungewear, ensuring the comfort of home wherever you roam. We're all in luck because you can discover your next destination for ultimate comfort at Cozy Earth. Visit CozyEarth.com and use our code UNEED at checkout to get 35% off. Yes, 35% off. And let them know that we sent you You Need Therapy after you check out. A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabrielle Collins. And this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Colin Bridgerton has returned from his travels abroad. Is betrothal written in the stars for the eligible bachelor? Meanwhile, the ton is reverberating with speculation of who holds Lady Whistledown's pen. 
we're discussing it all. I sit down with Nicola Coughlin, Luke Newton, Shonda Rhimes, and more to offer an exclusive peek behind the scenes of each episode of the new season. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh, my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And, of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. You know, I really appreciate you even saying that because I think that what I have seen and and projected out are the stories of like they left it all and they risked everything and it that's why they are here and it makes you feel like I have to do that and when I this is a smaller business but it's still a, a business when I left my very stable job at a treatment center and went and started a private practice I had to do other things I got a job in fitness to supplement my income because I started with zero dollars and I remember a, a mentor of mine saying like if you keep working in fitness your practice is never going to flourish the way that you want it to because you're not putting 100% into it you're going to get what you put into it and I was like okay but I have to pay my rent and long story short I still do both now and it worked out for me but I got that feedback and I was like dang it well what do I what am I supposed to do because that's what people say so I appreciate you offering that other perspective yeah there's so much mythology built around it and I feel like it can be for some people if you're just wired to be okay doing that then you know and if you don't have massive stakes where if it doesn't work a lot of things are going to be really painful then it might be something that's you know much more tenable. But for a lot of people, they won't even start trying anything new just because the thought of completely walking away from that old thing is so painful to them that they'll just keep themselves in this current state of pain. Whereas if you if you give this other option, and, and honestly, it even can move beyond the transition window. Like you said now, it started for you as this transitional thing, but very often it turns into this sustained blend, which can be beautiful. And that can be a blend of two different things that really make you come alive. It can also be a blend of two different things where one really makes you come alive and one is fine, but it covers, it it makes you financially really okay. It removes a lot of the stress. So the net effect of both of them 
is that you're honoring what for so many people is a deeply held value of um, financial security. And you're, you're removing a lot of the stress that would come from walking away and, and really struggling to, to you know, figure out how you're going to pay your bills. Um, and at the same time, you're doing a lot of other things that give you this feeling that, yeah, like I'm, I feel fully expressed in the way that I'm showing up for a lot of the hours of the day. So I think a blended path is also something which is completely legitimate and viable and really fulfilling for a lot of people. Which is a newer idea, right? Because when I was younger, you go to school, it's like career day. It's like, what are you going to be? And it was like a nurse, a police officer, a doctor, a teacher. Like, I think I was a nurse every single year because that's what my mom was and that's what I saw. But it was like, you have one thing. Nobody's like, I'm going to be the entrepreneur who does this and this and this and this and also does this. Nobody, that's not an option. It's an option now. It's, and I think that might be newer, you know, so what's interesting is I think it's being talked about more. And I think the notion that you definitely, you don't necessarily have one career that is your dominant thing for the rest of your life is newer. But at the same time, if you look back through history at many of the greatest artists and scientists and writers and creators um, and people in nearly any domain, you'll find a number of them that have this blended path. There's this wonderful book called Daily Rituals that looks at the daily rituals, like a 24 hour cycle in the lives of many of the most famous people and quote, successful people in science and art and, and a bunch of different places. And a lot of them, like they would have like a, a full-time job in a government you know, thing, which was like straight nine to five. And nobody knows this. They're not known for that. You know, they're known for the astonishing body of work that they've created as a painter. And they had no desire to actually leap. People were like, oh, eventually when you get really successful as a painter, to leave this other thing behind. I said, no, it's actually, I really like this. And the fact that I don't have to put in my mind that what I'm painting now must be likable on a level by other people, that they'll pay me enough money to support me and my family. The fact that I don't have to worry about that gives me a certain amount of creative freedom to just paint on a completely different level where you can, you can express yourself so much more fully that that's where the really profound work tends to emerge. So it's really interesting to sort of see the patterns that I think show up in really big ways in society sometimes and then get really quiet um, over time. Yeah, like why nobody is actually talking about that? Because the pressure to perform, I think, is really, really damaging sometimes. Yeah. And I mean, I feel that all the time. When I just can like show up as myself, great things happen. But if I have pressure to like wow somebody, I'm like, oh gosh, and I don't know what happens to me. Yeah. I mean, so, so now I'm curious about you. Like if you were, yeah. if you had a full-time job um, working, you know, like at, in therapy in, in this one, did you feel that sort of pressure to perform and, and is it different now? Like now that you can sort of um, set your own um, parameters more? That's a really great question for me to even think about. I think when I worked, I worked at a residential treatment center. It was an awesome experience. I learned a lot, but that was, it was a nine to five, sometimes like a nine to 10. It was a, a lot. But when I started, there was pressure to be really good at what I did for me to create a lot of change. It also had to do with me being newer in the field and like a hero complex and all that, which we have had to get over. But when I when I left, I think what it allowed me to do working in private practice where I'm not work, I'm not doing 40 hours of therapeutic work. It allowed me to enjoy it more because I wasn't 
burnt out from it because it's an exhausting job being in your feelings and being aware and attentive and awake to all of these things 24 seven. So it allowed me to enjoy my job better. So I think that I just showed up more as myself. And so I, I don't, I don't walk into a session being like, okay, I've got to change their life today, or I've got to fix their problem today, or I've got to, I just get to go sit with them. So I do think that it has taken the pressure away. Of course, I still have human desires of like wanting to help and make a difference. I really like working. And I'm afraid that if I stayed there, I wouldn't be doing therapy still. Yeah. I mean, that's so powerful, I think, to realize that. I think so many of us experience that. And also, you know, what when you were sharing that, what was in my mind was that it's not so much that the performance metrics go away, but it's that mm. we decide what the metrics are. Whereas when we're working for someone else, very often they decide what they are. Yeah. And, and we're like the challenges, we have to work to their metrics. And sometimes that well, you know, aligns really well with us and what we yeah. believe is important, but sometimes it doesn't. I think when it doesn't, that's where we have the friction where it yeah. can be really stressful. You know what else I just remembered is when I was at that, I forgot about this. I blocked this from my brain. When I was at that treatment center, within a year and a half of me working full time there, I started asking how I could get a job in the marketing department. Mm. I was like, they make they make more money than the therapist was one thing, but I was like, their jobs are so much lighter than mine, but you still get to work in in this field. How do I get a job doing that? Let me tell you, I do not want to do marketing. I, like now I, that's so to me, I, I'm, I'm, that's so sad because I know other people probably feel that when they're immersed and they are like burnt out in something that I feel like I was created to be a therapist, at least for now, that part of me was being like ripped away mm-hmm. and I wanted to work in marketing. I don't want to do that. But like the thought that my brain was going there. But then when I got to step back and kind of piece together the kind of how much do I want to do this, I actually got to figure out that I wait, I love therapy. I love being a therapist. I wonder with so many people that are listening to this, if they feel burnt out in their jobs, what would it look like if you could step back and maybe not do it in the capacity you're doing it? Would you love it again? Yeah. And and that is a deep fascination of mine. It's it's the reason behind a lot of the work I've been doing for the last two decades really is to, yeah. to just explore that, those questions, you know, because like I said, it's the thing that most of us do for, you know, the vast majority of our waking hours. And often now these days, because require, retirement is a bit of a, a myth, you know, for as long as we're around and we want to get the feeling of of being alive. And some of that, you know, is within our control. Some of it is, is not, but to the extent that we can, we can bring as much of it as possible under our control and then understand what do we actually need from that experience to feel good, you know? And I think that's a lot of, a a lot of the the curiosity for me also is just, is built around self-awareness because I, I would imagine you see so much of this just in your, in your private practices, you know, skills, practices, all these tools and strategies are great. But mm-hmm. if, if they're not built around this foundation of increasing self-awareness, it kind of doesn't matter because you don't know enough about yourself to know when mm-hmm. to apply them or, or how you're feeling to understand what's really going on. Yeah. I want to talk about your new book because I think that's what you're hitting on right there. But before we get into that, I do want to go back to the very beginning of this conversation when you were talking about your job as a lawyer. And this is the perfect example of how 
your body and your brain and your and your emotions and all of that is so connected to everything. So if you're stressed out, it's going to your body is going to react to that. If you think it's just mental, your body's going to react to that. We've been learning a lot about that on the podcast lately. But I want to talk about this idea and your your perspective on it is this like hustle culture that we're in. Full disclosure, I believe it's good to have a little hustle in you. We need to work hard and if we want things, sometimes we have to make sacrifices. But there's also a, a glamorization of what that actually means. And the overwork that it sounds like you were doing, it was like, I, I'm doing it. I'm doing the, I'm on the grind and all that. And, and so I want to just know your perspective on, on just that and how it's portrayed in society, because now I think there's two very polarizing views. It's like, put your head down and work and do it. And if you want something, make it happen. No excuses, no days off. And then there's like self-care all day long. And there's got to be a middle ground. <laughs> Yeah, I'm with I'm with you. I think there there is there's got to be a middle ground. Um, years ago, uh, a friend of mine who was in the sort of tech startup space coined this phrase "entreporn," which is sort of like um, in the world of entrepreneurship. You know, like there's all the stories that are told about people absolutely brutalizing themselves in the name of success, and and that's sort of like the version of porn in like the world of entrepreneurship, like everyone that's, that's all that dominates the media. And to this day, it still does, even though the, you know, there is an increasingly, an increasing acknowledgement of the level of, of mental illness within that domain because of just sheer abuse, self-abuse. I, I do believe like you, I believe in hard work, you know um, I work really hard. And um, I just wrote an, a, like a, a dispatch about this to my community yesterday that I think we confuse, we, we label hard work as a bad thing. Like there's that classic phrase, you know, do what you love and you never work a day in your life. I actually don't, it's not that, it's not that I don't believe it. It's that the underlying assumption is that work is bad. And, and I, I have, I love working hard. You know, we all love working hard. When you're a kid and you're running around playing with your friends outside for hours and hours and hours until finally like a parent drags you inside and says, you have to sit down and do your homework or eat dinner or go to bed. You're working hard that entire time, but it's the context. You're doing something that absolutely is fun and joyful and, and connected to other people. So I, I'm a fan of hard work, but I'm also, I am not a fan of working to the point of extreme depletion and burnout and sacrificing relationships with people you love and and activities and things that absolutely nourish and fill you up in the name of some arbitrary definition of you know like what you think you have to do or what somebody out there in some other culture is telling you you have to do you know i've heard the phrase you have to you know, like bleed through your eyeballs to succeed i'm like no no actually you <laughs> You don't. And you, so, yeah, I agree with you. I, I think working hard is, is great, but also so is taking care of yourself. So is finding ways to pause. So is finding ways to refuel your tank. At the same time, I don't believe in uh, the phrase life balance has always really messed with me. And again, because it positions work as a thing which is against life. Like it's a th- it's a negative thing that you have to balance against life. Well, why can't you have something which more like what my friend Mitch Joel calls work-life blend, where they sort of weave seamlessly between each other and they inform each other and they nourish each other. And I have a lot of friends that wake up in the morning and they want to work simply because the thing that they do is so nourishing to them. They do it with people that they can't get enough of. 
you know, um, they lose themselves in flow while they're doing it. And this is a lot of my experience just on a personal level too. So, and at the same time, I can get so lost in my own work because it's so deeply engaging that I'll stop moving my body. Or so I, I've set up certain practices throughout my day to sort of, you know, bring me back to the relationships that are important, bring me back to movement, you know, even small things like it, I, you know, I think moving my body is important. It's a commitment that I, I think we all need to make if for nothing other than mental health, you know, because of the effect that movement has on our brain and our, and our affect. So, you know, if somebody wants to have a meeting with me, and this was in before times, you know, like in, in addition to now, I would always ask them, I would tell them to meet me somewhere and we would walk and talk instead of sitting down somewhere. If someone wants a, a phone call with me, I'll always have pretty much always have a headset on and I'll be walking around, whether it's inside or if I can be outside, I'll do that as well. It's interesting. It's sort of like the way that, you know, the last 18 months has become video conference culture, which is awesome in a lot of ways because we can get all the cues and, you know, that are visual and nonverbal. And at the same time, it ties us to being sedentary. So now, anytime somebody asks me for a meeting, their default is very often, should I send you know, like a, a link to a video? And, and my default is absolutely not. If there's something that w- requires us to be on a screen, if you need to show me something, awesome, let's do it. Barring that, call me and I'm going to be on my headset. And I'm, I'm going to be outside walking. So I think there are ways to be really intentional about building practices where you can work really hard and also take care of yourself, you know, like your physical and emotional well-being. So you called that, what do you say, work-life blend? Is yeah. that what? That was, yeah, and, I and love that's actually, that. that's actually not my phrase. I've heard it a bunch of times, but um, originally from a friend of mine, Mitch Joel. Okay, well, I love that. And we're going to use that because when you said that, I was like, wait a second, you're right. I'm, I'm polarizing these and separating these out. And you can be living your life while you're working in other ways. And that, that, the way you're even talking about it, you, I'm, I'm just walking and moving my body and I'm on a phone call at work. Like that's me actually being in my life and, and combining those. So I love that perspective. Thank you. Thank you. A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabrielle Collins. And this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Colin Bridgerton has returned from his travels abroad. Is betrothal written in the stars for The Eligible Bachelor? Meanwhile, the ton is reverberating with speculation of who holds Lady Whistledown's pen. We're discussing it all. I sit down with Nicola Coughlin, Luke Newton, Shonda Rhimes, and more to offer an exclusive peek behind the scenes of each episode of the new season. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then... Fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. 
with the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Stephanie J. Block. And I'm Mary Lee Fairbanks. And we host Stages Podcast. Binge close to 100 episodes. Hear the inside stories from backstage and behind the scenes as we go beyond the resume and into the heart of creativity and what it really takes to be in the business of show business. Don't miss our chats with this season's Tony nominees. If you love theater and entertainment, you are going to love Stages Podcast. Subscribe to Stages Podcast wherever you listen to your podcasts and visit us at stagespodcast.net. Now, let's transition to this book because I'm excited about learning about what this is and what you've created. So I don't even know where to start, but will you tell us just a little bit about it and we'll go from there? Yeah, you know, I think it's actually kind of a natural a, a natural evolution from what we've been talking about, which is a lot of the way that we invest ourselves in, in work. And so I've been fascinated by the area of work for so long because so many people report it as being really emptying, but I've seen it be so nourishing in so many ways. And I got curious, is, is there some sort of identifiable, mappable set of impulses for effort, for work that make us come alive that are fairly universal across people? Because if there are, and we could identify them, and then we could create tools for people to discover what theirs is, then it would, I, I, it would be so helpful to really understand, like, how do I wake up in the morning and invest myself in something that makes me come alive? So I started doing a bunch of research and teased out these 10 different impulses. And then I realized that each one of these different impulses has a pretty common set of behaviors and tendencies and preferences that form larger archetypes. So I call those sparkotypes, which is kind of a fun shorthand for the archetype for work that sparks you. And then I said, you know, what if we could create a tool that would both validate this idea at a much larger scale, but also help people spend 10 to 15 minutes, answer a handful of questions, and then be actually able to, to, to meet their sparkotype and then really understand what is that impulse under everything that I've been doing for probably my entire life that both fills me up and empties me out. And then how can I make better decisions about what I'm going to say yes or no to in the domain of work or career or role that will get me so much closer to this feeling of aliveness. So we built that assessment called the sparkotype assessment and launched it back in at the end of 2018, took about a year to develop. Since then, over 500,000 people have completed it, you know, generating 25 million data points, a whole lot of validation for these 10 uh, sparkotypes. But more important than that, it's just the stories uh, that have come out of this, of people really seeing themselves for the first time in these, in, in these imprints um, and understanding and the, the feeling of both empowerment and agency and forgiveness and the ability to make better decisions and understand like it's self-awareness meets actionable intel. 
which is which is something that's so important to me. I'm I'm somebody who could easily live in my head, but the maker in me, my sparkotype is the maker. So I make ideas manifest. The maker in me wants to make tools that interact with the world that really make a difference. Okay. What you just said, the awareness and there's action, that's so important. I need to find out what my type is because yeah. <laughs> I all day long I'm creating awareness and helping people find awareness and like their behaviors and why they do things and all this stuff. But then what happens is par- like just we just get paralyzed. Okay, well now I know, but then there's no action. And I always say that like awareness without actual action or shifts is worthless. And it's actually I'd rather be just dead to to knowing because then I know and I'm not doing anything about it. So can you give us an example of like a type and how that might help shift some action? Yeah. So actually, this is really interesting given what you just said. So there are 10 different types. One of the types is I call them maven. And the fundamental impulse for the maven is knowledge acquisition. You wake up in the morning and all you want to do is learn. You devour knowledge. You devour information. Um, If you're an introverted maven, it's likely that you'll probably search for a lot of your information or, or a lot of your learning will happen online with books, with videos, with podcasts in a less interactive way. If you're a fairly extroverted maven, pretty safe bet you're going to get yourself in conversation with people taking classes, courses, workshops, learning from mentors, coaches. But the fundamental impulse underneath that is knowledge acquisition you are completely satisfied simply through the process of learning, of pursuing a deep fascination. That can be really narrow, like there's a specific topic and you want to know everything about it, or it can be really broad, like you wake up in the morning and people and the world fascinate you and you will talk with every single person that you come in, like people will be waiting in line behind you at the deli because you just want to know everything about the person behind the counter. Um, And by the way, in New York City, you don't ever do that because <laughs> you will feel the eyeballs on your back. It is not permitted. Different parts of the country, it's a whole different culture. But um, so, but here's the interesting thing about the Maven that ties back to what you were just saying. For the Maven, simply knowing more is completely nourishing. That gives you this feeling of coming alive. Whereas everybody who is not the Maven, who doesn't share that same impulse, looks at that and says, why are they investing so much effort, time, and sometimes money in learning all of this stuff, but not doing anything with it? Because if you're not that impulse, you can't understand the only utility of learning is what you're going to do with what you've learned. But if you're the maven, you do it simply because the joy of learning is everything that you would ever need. So there's this interesting thing that tends to happen, which is that People look at mavens and people around them will often start to say things like, how can you justify spending so much time investing in all of this learning and you're not doing anything with it? And mavens will often end up feeling a sense of shame because society says it's not a valid impulse unless you do something with it. But for them, it actually is everything that they need. Now, granted, it's also really hard to support yourself when all you're doing is learning all day. So very often a maven will look to teams or look to other people, the partner or the collaborate with somebody who's much more service or process oriented, where they can be in conversation, where they can be basically like the domain expert for something. And then they'll work with other people who really unlock the financial value and what they're learning to. And, and that's where they actually get compensated or they'll become a teacher. Yeah. So they'll, they'll actually share what they're learning. So they get paid for this other impulse, which might be illumination or insight. 
Um, but it really is just for them. It's secretly just a funding mechanism for yeah. their for their learning process. So it's really interesting to kind of like see how that play things like that play out. You know what that just made me think about? This is my own internal judgments that don't usually come out loud. But like I think about people who teach things like chemistry or like I mean even go higher and like higher education I'm like these people are so smart why didn't they want to go be like doctors and that's what you're talking about it's like they're satisfied knowing this knowledge and then just sharing the knowledge and uh, that so much is happening in my head right now but they might have a sense of shame because people might say that to them but really we need teachers we need that and the other thing is like I don't know. I want to. I want need to read all of these things and figure out what I am. But I'm not somebody who wants to sit down and do research. I read because I need to. I don't love to read current research. I don't love to. I don't love that. It it's interesting to me, but I don't love the process of doing it. But I like to make things happen, and I like to create. But I can't create with no information. <laughs> Right. And that's so, so one of the other sparkotypes is, is what I call the sage. And the fundamental impulse of the sage is awakening insight. It's illumination. So like the, the, you know, the, the common translation of that would be to teach, but you can't teach unless you know something, Right. <laughs> you know, so, so for, for somebody who has that thing, very often um, they will wake up in the morning and they're the ones who are like teaching their siblings or their friends, like anything that the second they would learn something as a kid, like it was cool that they learned it and they know it, but actually it wasn't real. It didn't make them feel alive until they shared it with somebody else, you know, which is like a related impulse to the Maven's knowledge acquisition, but it's the sharing part. It's the awakening insight. It's the illumination, which makes them to come alive. But that impulse can sometimes race ahead of what you know. Like you have such an impulse to share and to teach that you start to share what you know. And then everyone starts peppering you with questions. And you realize, you actually don't know enough. You haven't gotten like mastered this body of like knowledge enough to really be effective and it starts to trip you up. So that's, it's an interesting thing that tends to happen with a lot of sages is they start to sort of like just, they start their sharing process and then they realize, Ooh, I need to actually go back and do some more learning so that I can, I can, uh, I can do it in a more nuanced and informed way. Mm-hmm. So what I'm hearing is that these types l allow you to like live deeper into like the trueness of how you were created. And I don't have to be like everybody else because there's a purpose. Like I play a role because everybody is, everybody can't be all of these things. So yeah. I can play a role. Yeah. A hundred percent. I think it's really about understanding, you know, understanding what is that deeper impulse inside of you that makes you wake up in the morning and say, you know, I want to invest effort in something. I want to work at something, maybe really hard at something for no other reason than the feeling it gives me. And maybe I get, I'm really well paid for it, which is kind of like a nice thing, but it's actually not the reason I do it. Like for example, for me, so I said, I'm a maker. That's one of the sparkotypes. It's all about making ideas manifest. And for me, the process of creation with my hands and physical objects is the, there's something about that that is the most nourishing for me. So, so in theory, I could be creating things all day and I do that I then turn around and I offer to people and I'm compensated for. But three years ago, I took a month of my life and basically vanished into this renovated roadhouse in rural Pennsylvania where I lived upstairs and then I worked downstairs in a workshop and I paid a luthier or guitar builder 
to study with him for a month and every day for 13 hours a day, we're working with our hands building. I'm building a guitar, right? So, so I am paying thousands of dollars for the, the opportunity to work 13 hours a day to create something that, uh, you know, is going to be nowhere near the quality of what I could buy at a store for a lot less money. So because the process of the physical process of creation for me is so deeply nourishing that I was willing to actually pay for the opportunity to do it in a really particular way. You know, so I think, you know, when you can tap into those impulses on that level, and then you can figure out how to build a lot of your day around them, just like everything changes. I, I keep using this phrase coming alive or it makes you feel alive because I think it's kind of a bit of a nebulous phrase. And, but actually, there's, there are specific five specific components to that when I talk about that. So I'm talking about work that gives you the feeling of meaning. You know, like what I'm doing actually matters. It, there's something about it that is deeply meaningful to me. Work where it drops you into this state of flow, where you become absorbed in the activity. Time flies. It, it's like you're, you're existing in another world. People call it you know, like being in the zone, being in flow. Um, artists and athletes report this as being in your magical state. And, and there's a lot of research on the ability to be in that place not only feels incredible, but it also makes you hyper-creative. It, it triggers hyper-cognition. You're, like you're, you're functioning at your highest possible levels. The third element for me is excitement and, uh, and energy. People would shorthand that as engagement. And the fourth component is what I would call expressed potential. Like you feel like all of you, is being brought to the experience. You're not stifling anything or holding back. And the fifth part is the feeling of purpose. And that's a more immediate sense of purpose. Like I know I'm working towards something specific that matters to me, but also more broadly, a sense of purpose in life. And when you can find something, you know, find some work that gives you those five feelings as often as possible. It's astonishing what starts to change um, in the way that you move through the world. Yeah. And you know what I think is so cool about what you've created is there's so many tools and I'm not well versed in them. So I, I, I feel like what was the one that talks before they know? What were you teachers oh, the, before uh, they know? Oh, the sage. <laughs> it's like I'm doing a little bit of that right now. So I'm not going to talk about them specific, but there's so many like tools that are used in the workplace, like for communication and like strengths finder and this and that. And, and, and they're great and they can be used for a certain uh, to a certain extent, a certain level, and they can be helpful. And then there's the, the uh, personality tests like the Myers-Briggs and the Enneagram, and those are so helpful too. But this to me sounds like a really awesome blending of some of those things together, which yeah. is something I, I don't know that yeah, is available. And, and like you said, there are a lot of great tools in the marketplace. They tend to be different. They're more about relational styles or they're mm -hmm. more general, you know, general personality um, yeah. assessments. And this is the, the, the Sparkotype assessment and, and all the work around it is really, really, really focused on work. It literally just focuses on one question. What is the, like, the basic impulse for work that will make you come alive. And then like all the other wisdom that you get from, from the other tools is great. Like, you know, like you said in the, in, earlier in our conversation, anything that we can do to increase our own self-awareness is, is a great benefit. Like this, mm -hmm. the work around the spark of types and the assessment is really just hyper-focused on work um, be because it consumes so much of our lives, you know, like well, rather yeah. than having it just consume our lives, you know, if it could be this generative source of joy and meaning and connection, mm -hmm. then, you know, why wouldn't we want to make it that? 
No, I think that this is like such an exciting thing and and tool for people to have because I don't know anything like it. And the stuff that you're going to gain from the work part is going to, you're not going to help it. It's going to bleed out into other parts of your life. Yeah, it's, 100%. It's, I mean, we all know that if you're, if the way that you work is um, hyper stressful, is miserable, if it's burning you out, if you have no interest, if it's not giving you any sense of meaning or purpose or joy, well, you're going to carry that. I mean, I, I, I have to imagine you see this in your practice. You're going to carry that, you know, emotional load into everything. Yeah. Well, a question I have for you that I don't know if you will be able to answer this, but I do see that a lot. There's a lot of people that feel kind of like we we're talking about earlier trapped in work because they can't get a new job right now or the what their skill set like can they even get a job that would fulfill their lifestyle and sometimes i do feel kind of stuck with like i don't like i don't have the answer for you i'm glad we're talking about it but is this a, something that that can really help people who are stuck in a job and and the answer isn't to change their job it yeah. the answer is to change how they is it how they're doing their job oh 100% this is this is um it's funny. I devoted like a, a really big meaty chapter in the book to exactly this question. Cause you're right. A lot okay. of people feel like I can't just go do something else right now. And especially the times right now, because there's a lot of yeah. people are like, I have to keep my job that's stable. Yeah, absolutely. And, and the beautiful news is that, yes, there's, there's very often a lot that we can do with the thing that we're doing right now to reimagine it, to reinvent it, to optimize it. Once we understand you know, when, when you didn't understand what is this deeper impulse for work that makes me come alive, you don't know how to reinvent or reimagine or optimize the thing that you're doing to be able to do more of it. Once you understand what that thing is, then you can actually look at what you're doing. You can look at your job and say, okay, this is the thing that matters to me. Like, this is the type of work. These are the tasks. These are the tools. These are the processes that would let me express my sparkotype, this impulse and the work that I'm doing. And then you look at what you're doing. You're like, how can I do more of this? Like, and, and inevitably there are, you know, like five, 10, 20, 30, 40, 50, a hundred tiny little ways that you can do more of it in the work that you're doing. And so you don't have to do these massive things, but in tiny little ways, even if it has, you know, it extends beyond your basic job description. If there's an opportunity to do something simply because of the feeling it will give you, then why not do it? You know, so, so optimizing your work or what I call sparking your work is something that most people don't even think about because they don't imagine it's possible. And also because they don't know, what do I optimize it around? What do I reimagine it around? When you understand the answer to that question, then you have this ability to look at your work and say, ooh, but if I do a little bit more of this or a little bit more of this or a little bit less of this, or there's this thing that actually, it's not in my job description, but I know these other people here are doing it and they need more people to, to do a bit more of that. Or they, you know, it, there's an opportunity for me to just step into that and do a bit more of it because it would just make me, it, it seems so cool and so nourishing. I'd love to do it. Then you have this opportunity to really reimagine what you're doing. There's, um, there's some really fascinating research in, around what some of the researchers call job crafting, which shows that when you do this process or variations of it, not only do you feel a lot better, but other people start to notice you in an organization. Your state changes in the organization. People respond to you differently. Um, it's perceived as initiative very often also. And your abilities and the way that you're perceived 
your opportunities within a job or an organization tend to change um, in a really meaningful way. But more importantly, at the end of the day, you go home knowing that you've just spent a whole lot more of your day doing something that is deeply nourishing to you rather than emptying. And you don't feel like you're locked into this thing, which is just perpetually draining you anymore. Even though you haven't changed companies and you haven't changed you know, the actual title of what you're doing, you're stepping into it differently. You've reimagined it in a way that's giving you so much more of what you need. And like you said, especially right now at this moment in time, I think that's so important. Mm-hmm. And, and we've said this before, but when you are more engaged and when you're more fulfilled during your day at work, you could be expending the same amount of energy. That's going to change when you, when you get to the thing after work, whether that's going home or going to see friends or family or whatever it is, you're going to have more energy if you're enjoying it. I mean, yeah, you might be tired some days and you might just need to go home and take a nap and you might, but at the same time, the draining is so different and you could be working just as hard, but you can be showing up in your life brighter, putting the same energy out. And why wouldn't you want to do that? Yeah, a hundred percent. I mean, I'm so, yeah. Yeah. Those days where I was, I'm spending 13 hours building a a guitar with my hands. It was, it was hard work. It's like physical, physical work. And I would, the end of the day, my body was exhausted. Yeah. You know, I was really, really physically tired, but I was emotionally on fire. I felt so good with what Compared I was Compared to doing. when you were a lawyer. Yeah, 100%. <sighs> well, I am excited about this book. When does it come out? I, you can pre-order it now, but... The book is out on the 21st. Okay, so the book's out the 21st. Where can they buy it? Where can they get it? Yeah, so people, you can buy the book basically at booksellers anywhere. Anywhere. Yeah. Okay. Amazing. And then where can they find you, the Good Life Project podcast? Yep. Good Life Project podcast. And then for anyone who's actually interested in taking the Sparkotype assessment, which will tell mm-hmm. you your Sparkotype, it's just at Sparkotype.com. It's completely free. It's online. And that's S-P-A-R-K-E-T-Y-P-E.com. But even if you misspell it and forget the middle E, you'll still end up in the same place. Okay. Well, I'm gonna, I thought you had to read the book to do that. So I can go online right now and get my type. Yeah, hundred percent. Like you can take the assessment online and then the book will, will give you this really deep dive into your type in okay. a much more nuanced and cool way. Okay. Beautiful. I'm doing that today. I'm excited. Um, well, thank you so much. Thank you for this conversation. I w- want to sit here and talk about your life, the parts that we didn't get into more, but you know, timing, but thank you so much for being here and for offering this and creating this tool for people. Yeah, it's my pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate it. A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabby Collins. And this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
Hi, I'm Michael Rappaport. And I'm Kibi Rappaport. And together we're hosting Rappaport's, Rappaport's Reality, Reality Podcast. Podcast. We have a passion for reality TV, and we're inviting you into our living room. We're dissecting the drama, and we're giving praise to the single greatest form of entertainment on television today. That is right. Reality TV is the greatest form of entertainment on television today. Listen to Rappaport's reality with me, Kibi Rappaport. And me, Michael Rappaport, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast.